Um, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word now. If you have your Bibles, you can meet me in Acts chapter 17. Uh, we'll be in the first 15 verses. I will uh, read verse 1 through 15, and I invite you to follow along as I read. Uh, once again, that's Acts 17, verses 1 through 15, and then I'll pray and we'll take a look at this text together. Luke writes, Now when they had passed through Amphilopolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And these Jews were, not, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted uh, Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Father, you tell us in Scripture that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So as we navigate this broken and therefore dark world, you have given us a, a tool to illuminate our way. And that tool is known other than your living word. And so we turn to it this morning for direction. And I pray that your spirit would engage our minds so that we may reason the logic of your word and that your powerful spirit would transform our hearts through this process. In Jesus' holy name, we pray these things. Amen. Lee Strobel who is known for his book, The Case for Christ, actually started his career as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. His entire career, he would track court cases and write newspaper articles about them. And at the beginning of his famous book, he, he recounts a particularly routine case that he covered about a suspect named James Dixon, who was on trial for shooting a police officer. Strobel says that the case was airtight, or at least it was airtight 
until an informant came forward with some evidence to suggest that the suspect was indeed innocent. As Strobel continued to look into such claims, he discovered that the informant was correct and that the suspect was indeed innocent, and eventually the verdict was overturned. Strobel came to realize that he was looking at the case with with a, a wrong set of eyeglasses, if you will, a wrong set of lenses. He was looking at the case through the lens of presuppositions that he realized uh, were in error. I want you to listen to what Strobel has to say uh, in regards to the overturning of this case and in regards to his own involvement with it as a journalist. He writes that looking through those lenses, all the original evidence seemed to fall neatly into place. Where there had been inconsistencies or gaps, I naively glossed them over. When police told me that the case was airtight, I took them at their word and didn't delve much further. But when I changed those lenses, trading my biases for an attempt at objectivity, I saw the case in a whole new light. Finally, I allowed the evidence to lead me to the truth regardless of whether it fit my original presuppositions. Strobel goes on in his book to explain that his experience with that particular case was a lot like his own spiritual journey in a way. See, early in his life, he considered himself an atheist, but he never really took the time to examine the claims and evidence of Jesus. He admits that he had a set of biases and presuppositions that drove him to jump to conclusions without proper examination. And this was always the case for him until his wife became a believer. And he began seeing just these kind of subtle, but rather significant shifts in her attitude and in her character. And it was, it was from her own experience that he decided to launch an all-out investigation into the claims of Jesus. And he determined that he would actually approach the situation much like he would in one of his court cases. This is what Strobel has to say. He, he writes, I plunged into the case with more vigor than any story I had ever pursued. I applied the training I received at Yale Law School, as well as my experience as a legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. And over time, the evidence of the world, of history, of science, of philosophy, of psychology, began to point toward the unthinkable. It was like the James Dixon case revisited. If you've read the book, you know that Strobel goes on to investigate the case for Christ. He goes on to interview uh, these professionals in these fields using his expertise. And by the end of his story, by the end of the book, he himself actually comes to believe in Jesus. Strobel realized that there was a mountain of evidence at our disposal that pointed to Jesus. And since God created our brains and created us with, with intellect, with, with intelligence, we have the ability to examine logically the claims of Jesus and God's work. 
We have critical thinking skills. And if the Bible claims to be a source of objective truth, which it does, we can actually put it to the test. This is what Lee Strobel did in his own faith journey. And this is actually how we see Paul evangelize the unbeliever in Acts 17. I want to take a look at it together. I want to show you how Paul engages in conversation with the unbeliever. If you've been following along with us for some time I want, and you want to see a visual of just where we are uh, geographically, I do have an updated map for you. Um, once again, this tracks Paul's second missionary journey where we've been so far. Uh, last week, we were in Philippi up in the northwest corner of the map. And uh, in Philippi, after releasing Paul and Silas from prison, they politely asked them to leave. And so Paul and his team traveled down the coast of Macedonia through a few cities. And then they eventually arrive in Thessalonica, the, the, actually the capital of Macedonia. The journey from Philippi to Thessalonica would have been about three to five days. It covers about 70 to 80 miles. And per their pattern, as was usual, they went to the synagogue first to preach to the Jewish people. And we're told that they spent three Sabbath days with these Jewish people. And we should understand that they were in Thessalonica much longer than three weeks. But it's safe to assume that over the course of the first three Sabbath days, their initial three weeks is when they began to speak to the unbelievers. Now coming into verses two and three, I want us to notice four very specific words that are used to describe what Paul does in these synagogues, how he communicates. They are specific actions. They are all verbs. And they really can be used as a blueprint for how to engage in gospel conversations. This is an appropriate model that we could follow even today uh, with unbelievers. I'm going to give you the four words up front. If you're taking notes, I would recommend writing them down and then we'll walk through them together. From verses two and three, we read that Paul reasons, he explains, he proves, and he proclaims. He reasons, he explains, he proves, and he proclaims. Let's walk through these together. First, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Right? They would have had a familiarity with the scriptures, and he is reasoning them. He is appealing, if you will, to logic, but then letting them also dialogue. It means that there was discussion. There was engagement with the mind. Paul challenged them to think through the, the logic of such claims and how they affirm what the Old Testament scriptures, what their holy texts were saying. We must understand that evangelism is a two-way street, right? As we tell people about Jesus, there will be objections and there will be questions and we need to carefully leave room on the floor in our discussions for such dialogue so that we can reason with them. You see, we should not look to have gospel presentations, but instead we should look to have gospel conversations. Perhaps you've seen it. I know that I have. I've seen people pull out charts before and give this wonderful airtight gospel presentation without ever letting someone get a single word. And what Paul demonstrates is, no, I'm not giving a gospel presentation. I am having a gospel conversation. We are having dialogue. We are talking back and forth. But let me give you a word of caution. 
right? Because many people look at dialogue as just an opportunity to understand where someone is coming from. They say, well, I'm glad that you're there and I'm glad that you're here and we both understand each other and now we can just go on along our merry way and everybody can just be just, just fine, right? Unbelievers will view dialogue as a meeting of minds. They will view it as a reason, uh, view reason as an opportunity to enrich the minds of all of those who are in the discussion. And so don't get me wrong, dialogue is important. But the aim of dialogue, the aim of, of reason is not simply discussion so that we can know what each other believes. Rather, it is to persuade. You must enter the conversation. And Paul entered the conversation not seeking to come out of the conversation with a new and bigger and better mind, but instead you are seeking to persuade the other so that they may know Jesus. Paul reasoned. And not only did Paul reason, Paul also explains. The picture that we get from this word in its original use is that Paul opened something up to them. Their minds were closed to knowledge, so Paul opened their minds to this knowledge. He told them the information that's necessary uh, for coming into a saving understanding of Jesus Christ. It's akin to your high school teacher standing up before the class at the beginning of the period and saying, now class, open your textbooks to page 34 so that we can gain knowledge, so that we can understand information. There's a great illustration of this concept um, of explaining something straight from Scripture, actually, and it comes in Luke 24. In that chapter, the resurrected Jesus joins two people on the road to a village called Emmaus. And during their journey, the people tell Jesus, whom they don't recognize in the moment, they, they are telling him about the rumors that are swirling around this Jesus figure and how he was put to death and now he's resurrected and we're not really sure and this comes as a surprise. And Jesus, as they're walking, proceeds to tell them, This shouldn't come as a surprise to you because this is what the prophets wrote about. The the prophets have been writing about this for centuries. And you read this text every week. And then it says that Jesus systematically explained all the scripture to them. Once they arrive at their destination, they invite Jesus actually to come in for dinner. And Jesus sits down with him and he takes the bread and he prays for it and he gives thanks for it and he breaks it and he serves it to them. And it says that as soon as they ser- he served it to them, the lights clicked on and they recognized, they knew who it was that they were talking to. And then Jesus disappeared from their sight. In verse 32, They said to each other, the people, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus opened knowledge to them. He he revealed it to them. He explained it to them. To explain something is to take something that was once foreign to you, that your mind was closed to, and now you are familiar with it. You you have opened it up. You didn't have knowledge of it, and now you do. This is what Paul is doing. He is explaining who Jesus is to these Jewish people. And so he, he, um, Paul explains, right? Paul reasons, Paul explains, and then third, Paul proves 
He proves. The literal meaning of this word proves here in this context is to set before. He is setting before them something. What is he doing? He's demonstrating the validity of these claims. He's building a case for Christ. He sets before them the evidence, the the case. He, He gives them evidence that what he just explained is valid and legitimate and is worthy of your examination. He's saying, look at all the proofs. Look at all the things that, that, uh, that show that this claim holds up under scrutiny. And so when we share the message of Jesus, yes, we must be able to explain it and explain it in a logical, reasonable fashion. But then we must be prepared to defend it. Right? We, we must be prepared to provide evidence for it. I don't know if I've ever heard of a court case where an accusation is made, where a claim is made, and it's not immediately followed by evidence, by proofs. In fact, there's been entire court cases that have just been thrown out because of a lack of evidence. But this is what they're doing in court, right? Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. All of these exhibits are set before the jurors so that the jurors can make good, logical, proper judgment. And this is what Paul is doing. He is proving the validity of the claims that he just explained. Paul reasons. He explains. He proves. And then finally, the text said that he proclaims. He proclaims. It simply means to announce, to declare. We as believers are inherently proclaimers. It's what we are. It's part of our DNA. And if there's anything that I would strongly urge the believer in this room to do, it is to learn how to proclaim specifically the gospel. Proclaim Jesus. Oftentimes when I have people fill out applications for ministry positions or volunteer positions or membership or baptism, you name it, I will always ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Tell me what it is. And you would be amazed at how many cannot articulate the good news of Jesus Christ. More often than not, people write about what they've done and what they do rather than what Jesus has done for them. I don't necessarily doubt their faith. I don't doubt that they're not believers, but I, I, would, I would just challenge everyone to learn how to proclaim the gospel, because that is what we are as believers, proclaimers, not of what we've done, but of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Paul does this. Paul reasons, he explains, he proves, and he proclaims. This is a wonderful biblical model for what evangelism should look like. But equally important, if not more, we need to understand uh, not just what evangelism shouldn't look like, Uh, what it should look like, but also what it shouldn't look like. So I have two more words for you to consider. Evangelism is not a matter of imposition, and it is also not a matter of manipulation. Evangelism is not imposition. Evangelism is not manipulation. This is what I mean. Imposition. It's the act of forcing something onto someone against their will. The great late John Stott, a theologian, describes imposition, defines it as the crusading attempt to coerce people 
by legislation to accept the Christian way. The crusading attempt to coerce people by legislation to accept the Christian way. A sad example from history of imposition is the Crusades. The Crusades, they occurred during the 11th century through the 13th century. And it was an attempt to reclaim land in the Middle East that had been uh, conquered by Muslims. And in their attempts, many people were forced to become Christians. And if they refused, they were put to death. It was brutal. It was evil. It was imposition. And it was wrong. How about a more recent example of imposition? One that may hit a little too close to home. The riot against Capitol Hill on January 6th, just here over a month ago, is an example of imposition. As I sat there and watched news feed, many of the rioters that stormed the Capitol building did it in Jesus' name. And they were waving Christian imagery and they were waving Christian flags right next to the gallows that they had just built. The idea of persuading someone to follow the Christian way by use of force and imposition in the name of Christ is completely unbiblical. You cannot transform someone's heart by force. You are powerless to do so. It is only the Holy Spirit that can transform. Evangelism is not imposition. It is also not manipulation. Perhaps you've been in the service where the pastor who you love so much and has such an engaging personality tells the story and he pulls all the right heartstrings and it's so just riveting and so inspiring and it's such an experience and you've got the music playing in the background at just the right volume and tone and the music is so soft and it sets just the emotional mood just right and you come down to the front because you're just so overcome with the stirring of emotions. I don't want you to misunderstand me, and I don't want to discredit your conversion if that's what your experience looked like. There is a place for emotion in biblical Christianity. There is a prominent place for emotion in biblical Christianity. Just read the Psalms, and you'll find that. But our conversion experience should not be wrought from a manipulated setting where we've lost control of our emotions, but rather from a place of clarity in thought. If that happened to you, that, that's great. I have enjoyed experiences like that as well. Don't get me wrong. But, but I want you to be able to clearly and intelligently be able to profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I've heard it said that to manipulate one's emotions, which is far easier than you may think, is to get them to lie to themselves manipulation. It can also occur when somebody offers incentives in this life if you follow Jesus like health and wealth. If, if anybody ever tells you that if you follow Jesus, you will get a raise or a promotion or a car, you need to run from that person as far as you can. 
Because Jesus never promised you a new car. And he never promised you a promotion. And he never promised you great success if you were to follow him. No, actually, he has called us to pick up our cross and follow him. And where else would we be going in this life with a cross but to die, to die to ourselves? That's actually the trail that Jesus has blazed for us, right? Jesus follows that primary pattern, which is what Paul preaches here. We have to remember the primary mission of Jesus in coming into this world was to fulfill scriptures written about him that told us that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die and that he was going to rise from the dead. We've spoken mostly this morning about the practical steps in our conversations with non-believers, but it's imperative that we do not forget the core and the source of our message. Right, right? Because we can be a great debater and we can talk with people very well and we can make the, the wonder, the most wonderful presentations and airtight cases, right? But if your claim and your source is faulty, then so will your argument. So, so I got to ask the question, what did Paul reason here? What did he explain and prove and proclaim? He reasoned from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead. And because Jesus did that, Paul proudly proclaimed to these Jewish people that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. You know that savior you've been looking for that your forefathers told us about? Jesus is it. And I'm going to declare that until my dying day. Paul was with them for three Sabbath days, so he had to say much more about this topic. But of all the things that Luke chooses to record, he chooses to write about how Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. The core of our message is the fact that Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. Everything in our faith hinges on the fact that Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. Because that's what makes reconciliation with God possible. That is what makes forgiveness possible. That is what makes repentance possible. At its very foundation, Jesus' death and resurrection was necessary in God's saving plan for humanity. Many contemporary Christians are eager to be relevant and eager to meet the felt needs of people, which is fine and it's okay, but we must not ignore the cross. Right? It's fine to, to, to be relevant and to people's needs and to, and to give them care packages because we love them and we want them to know of God's love, but, but it, we shouldn't do this at the expense of proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. Because if we don't come to a point where we tell people about a suffering Savior, then many of the efforts will be in vain. And when we do proclaim this, and we do tell people about Jesus, there is a strong possibility that we will come up against opposition because the gospel challenges people's perception of the world and their way of life. But the gospel is a radical message and the gospel does strike people and people strike back. 
Right, right. This, this natural defense mechanism, right? It, it's, it's, it's what we see here in Thessalonica. Yes, some people were persuaded and joined, but there were others who grew jealous, right? And so what do they do? They go to the marketplace and they recruit what, what the text says as wicked men of the rabble. What they do is they go find the thugs of society. They go recruit these ruffians, these thugs, uh, these no good guys, these rowdy hoodlums, and they form this mob and they seek to drag out Paul and Silas from the home that they're staying in. And Paul and Silas aren't there. And so they do the next best thing and they drag out the owner of the home and some others with them. His name is Jason and and they, they parade Jason and some other believers in front of the authorities. Now, we don't have all the details about what Paul preached, but what we can tell from this passage and from what the opposition accuses them of is that as Paul preached that Jesus was their Savior, he must have also preached that Jesus was their Lord. Because the the, the mob tells the authorities that these men are acting treasonously against Caesar, claiming that there's another king and that this king's name is Jesus. They're essentially telling the authorities, these believers are trying to overthrow Caesar. This is what their intent is. Now, this claim is partially true. By no means was Paul trying to overthrow Caesar's throne. But he is claiming that there's a higher throne. Right? Yes, Caesar, Paul says, yes, you are king and you're more than welcome to finish your time on the throne, but eventually your time on the throne will end. But I know a king who sits on an eternal throne and who is elevated above all other thrones. And so Caesar, I will respect you as king. I will give to Caesar what is Caesar's because that's what Jesus has commanded me to do. But there is a higher throne. Regardless, the the mob still kind of takes this message of Jesus as a threat. And I want to point out what they claim is happening when Paul and company declare Jesus as king. What effect does this type of message have in society? Verse 6 Listen to what they say. These men have turned the world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. They're they're rocking the boat, right? And we don't like it. It makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. It speaks to their perceived stability of the world. The gospel is radical enough that many will see it as an attempt to turn their whole world upside down. But we must understand that this is purely a matter of perspective. If you were to go up to Niagara Falls, there is a tourist attraction up there uh, called the Upside Down House. I, I wouldn't recommend going to it. It's a tourist trap. You will spend way more money than it's probably worth. However, if you watch videos, you'll get the same experience. The Upside Down House is exactly what it sounds like. It's a house that's upside down. And when you walk in it, all of the appliances and all of the furnishings and all of the belongings and even some garbage, little Cheerios are securely fastened to what, per, what we believe to be the ceiling, but really is the floor in this upside down house. And this house convinces you in a disorienting fashion that you are actually walking on the ceiling. 
And it has the effect to potentially fool you into thinking that it's actually not the house that's upside down, but it's actually you who's upside down because of all of your surroundings. This is what's happening when the mob tells the believers that they've turned the world upside down. They look at their surroundings in the world and think that the believers are the ones trying to turn it on its head. But what the mob doesn't realize is that Jesus isn't turning the world upside down. He is actually turning it right side up. The world in its fallen and broken state is already upside down. But you would never know that if the upside down world is all you've ever known. You see, in our natural state, sin and brokenness is all we've ever known. And even though it's fractured, even though the unbeliever can say, yes, something is wrong. It's what we perceive as normal. It's what we think is right side up. And the unbeliever will continue to think the world is right side up. They will continue to think this way until someone comes along and logically, reasonably, intelligently points out to them that your world is actually upside down. And so when someone tells you about Jesus, yes, it feels like your world turns upside down, but it's really your world turning right side up. And you won't realize this until your eyes have been opened to the glaring brokenness of the world and the fractured nature of your soul. You cannot be turned right side up until you are in fact in understanding that your world is upside down and always has been. The men in Thessalonica just aren't ready to admit that yet. In the closing verses of our passage, we see Paul and Silas flee to Berea in response to this mob in Thessalonica. And once again, they find themselves preaching the gospel in the synagogues, but they get a different reaction this time, don't they? Instead of hostility in verse 11, we find that the Jews received the word with all eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There's a contrast here between how Thessalonica responded and how Berea responded. For the the Bereans, they closely examine these claims and to do that daily in the scriptures is how someone would carry on in a legal process such as a trial. They're considering the evidence. They're looking to see if these things are actually true because they know if these claims are true, they will have supreme ramifications on our life. In our passage, there are two different reactions to this message of Jesus. And so if you are sitting here today and you have yet to believe in Jesus and you're not completely convinced of this yet, I have a challenge for you. Will you be like those in Thessalonica who react out of flagrant emotion and perceive Jesus as a threat to your world's stability? Or will you be like those in Berea who carefully, nobly examine such claims daily? You have a choice. You have a choice. But I would recommend that you examine these claims for yourself. I cannot 
stress enough the importance of you studying daily these claims. Don't take my word for it. How many times do you hear a public speaker stand up and say, don't take my word for it? That's how confident I am that these claims are are true and that you can go and examine these truths for yourself. You're sensible. You're intelligent. Don't take my word for it. Find out for yourself. I have no, very little patience, I should say, for those who are apathetic to the scriptures because they're too lazy to examine these claims themselves. I am here to tell you that your eternity after you die is on the line. And if someone were to tell me that my eternity was on the line, I wouldn't take such an apathetic approach. That is a heavy claim that is worth examining. And too many people try to write it off in an emotional fury because they're offended by it. I'll close our time with a final word from Lee Strobel in regards to this. He says in the closing paragraphs of his introduction in the case for Christ, this is what he writes. If you were selected for a jury in a real trial, you would be asked to affirm up front that you haven't formed any preconceptions about the case. And you would be required to vow that you would be open-minded and fair drawing your conclusions based on the weight of the facts and not on your whims and prejudices. You would be urged to thoughtfully consider the credibility of the witnesses, carefully sift through the testimony and rigorously subject the evidence to your common sense and logic. That's your task. I hope you take it seriously because there may be more than just idle curiosity hanging in the balance. If Jesus is to be believed, then nothing is more important than how you respond to him. If you have yet to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, I would ask you this very morning, would you humble yourself? Would you be open to the fact that just maybe you're wrong about the world. That, that, that just maybe your world is actually upside down. And it always has been. And, and that the only one who can turn it right side up is Jesus. I would graciously ask you to consider such things. The option is before you. And the option is purely yours. I can reason and I can explain and I can prove and I can proclaim. But at the end of the day, you need to decide whether you will believe in Jesus or you won't. And I am not responsible for your eternity. Would you pray? Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word and we thank you for these truth claims. And I thank you, Father, that there is a mountain of evidence within scripture and uh, outside of scripture that point to uh, Jesus, Lord. Your world proclaims his name and his glory. And I pray that there would be people that are open to this fact. I would ask, Father, this morning that if there is anyone who is uncertain 
that by the power of your spirit, you would, you would engage with their mind, that you would speak to them, that you would call them and they would hear you and their hearts would be changed and transformed. We praise you, Lord. We thank you so much for your goodness to us when we didn't deserve it. In your holy name I pray. Amen.